Go ahead and open up your Bibles with me, if you would. Let's look together at the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis, in chapter 32. As we continue working our way verse by verse through this book, and particularly in this season of our life together as a church, we're looking at the account of the life of Jacob and all that God did through him and in his life, how it points to Christ. Genesis chapter 32 is where we're going to be this morning. This morning I am sounding a theme for us that I don't think it can be sounded too often. More than anything, this message is a uh, call to prayer, a call to uh, renewed devotion to prayer, renewed commitment to prayer, renewed earnestness in prayer. It's a call for us to be a praying people. Over the last several months, I have found myself greatly encouraged by the accounts of a Scottish man uh, named John Welch. Uh, Welch was a preacher known for his boldness in public, but also known for his practice of prayer in private. Uh, In public, he did not hesitate to preach the truth. In private, we're told that he extraordinarily uh, prayed seven to eight hours a day. Um, in public, he, he, I'm sorry, I just I heard somebody else preaching. I didn't, I didn't know what to do. In uh, and, and, and private, he, he extraordinarily would pray for, for seven to eight hours a day, sometimes alone, sometimes with his family, uh, often waking up in the night and, and praying for periods of time between what he called his first sleep and his second sleep. Uh, John Welch is also well known for having been a thief before his conversion to Christ, and for marrying one of uh, the great reformer John Knox's daughters. But uh, this story I thought was, was particularly encouraging, and I just really wanted to share it as a way of bringing this subject of prayer before us. For a time, John Welch served as a minister in a village in France. And one evening, there was a, a Roman Catholic friar who was traveling through the country And he came to Mr. Welch's house and asked if he could stay the night. He said he had been around the village trying to find lodging. He could not find a place to stay. Would Welch let him stay at his house for the night? Now, John Welch was a a Reformed Protestant pastor, and so this was a very unusual situation to have a, a Roman Catholic friar want to stay the night at his house. The family had already had supper before the friar arrived, but the servants of the house fixed the friar a meal, brought it to his, to his chamber, and left him there to rest. Well, between the friar's chamber and Mr. Welch's room, there was only a, a, a thin timber partition. And after having been asleep for a while, the friar awoke in the middle of the night, and he heard whispering. And it continued and continued to the point that the friar became frightened. What was this sound that he was hearing? 
Well, the next morning, while he was walking in fields around the village, um, the friar met one of the locals of the village who struck up a conversation with him and asked him, where did you spend the night last night? And the friar answered that he had lodged at the home of the local uh, Huguenot minister. Um, Remember, at this time, most Protestants were either uh, Lutherans following Luther or Reformed following Calvin. So the the Reformed folks were called, in France, were called Huguenots. A lot of them ended up coming to North Carolina. We have a a rich Huguenot history. Nothing to do with the story. Um, So so the Reformed folks in France were called Huguenots. And uh, the friar stayed the night at this Huguenot pastor's house. And so the friar told this man, well, I stayed at, at John Welch's home. And when the local man asked the friar how his night had been, the friar responded, it was terrible. It was the most awful night of my life. He said, I've always heard that there are devils haunting those Protestant ministers' houses, and now I'm persuaded that there was one in the house last night. He said, I am convinced that the whispering I heard was the minister and the devil conversing together. Well, the local man told the friar that he had been mistaken, that what he had heard was the minister saying his night prayers. Oh, said the friar, the Protestant minister prays? Yes, more than any man in France. And if you please to stay with him another night, you can see this for yourself. So the friar returned to Mr. Welch's house and he came up with an excuse, a reason why he needed to stay there another night. Before dinner, Mr. Welch led the household in family worship as he did each night. They sung a psalm together. They read a portion of the scripture and discussed it. And then Mr. Welch prayed with great fervor for God's blessings on their family and their country. Well, after supper, the friar and Mr. Welch spent some time in conversation together, but they stayed away from controversial subjects. And that night, his Curiosity peaked, the friar waited for the whispering to begin again. And sure enough, in the middle of the night, it did. The friar crept quietly to Mr. Welch's door and listened to him pray. And he was able to actually hear the words that were being said. And we're told that he overheard Mr. Welch speaking to God with such love and with such familiarity that it was unlike any prayers the friar had ever encountered or even thought existed in this world. The story goes on to say that the next morning the friar came to Mr. Welch and that he confessed to having spied on him the night before. He asked if he too could have such a relationship with God as Mr. Welch had. In fact, the story goes on to say that he became a Protestant and continued as one to this very day of death. So my question for us is this. Do we know what it is to have that kind of a relationship with God? Do we know what it is to truly commune with God, to find delight in fellowshipping with God through prayer? Uh, The message of our text this morning is this. God's people overcome fear and obtain blessing through prayer. Say it again. The message, I think, overall of Genesis 32 is God's people overcome fear and obtain blessing through prayer. Thomas Watson said, Prayer is a bomb which makes heaven's gates fly open. God has given Christians everything they need in Jesus Christ. We are children of God 
who are not yet mature enough to be given the fullness of our inheritance. And so it has been entrusted to Jesus for us. And whatever we need each day as we're going throughout our lives, we go to God in prayer. And as he sees these needs and hears our prayers, he communicates to his son and his son gives us of our inheritance through Christ. Well, let's, let's see what this looked like for Jacob. Let's begin in verses 1 and 2. Genesis 32, verses 1 and 2. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's camp. See, he called the name of that place Mahanaim. Now, as Jacob is coming back to Canaan, uh, these angels of God meet him. And we're told that Jacob called the place Mahanaim, which refers to military camps. Uh, In fact, it actually refers to two military camps. Now remember, when when Jacob left Canaan to go to Laban's 20 years earlier, God had revealed to him this dream of angels ascending and descending a staircase. And the message for Jacob at that time, 20 years ago, was, Jacob, though your eyes can't normally see them, I am working. There are angels doing my bidding in this world. My hand is at work in your life. My hand is at work all around you. Trust me. And by God's grace, Jacob did trust the Lord. Well, now, 20 years later, as Jacob is entering into Canaan, God allows Jacob to see angels again. However, they appear this time not ascending or descending staircases, but in these two military camps. Why? Well, first, this reminds Jacob that there are still battles ahead. Remember, Jacob is returning home to a brother who has vowed to kill him. Um, It has been 20 years, yes. But when Jacob left Esau, there was a burning, violent hostility between them. Esau was simply waiting for the day of his father's death, and then he was going to kill his brother. And now Jacob Jacob had left because his life was in danger. Now Jacob is returning. This issue of conflict with Esau is still ahead of him. And so there will be that battle to fight in Canaan, and there will be other battles to fight in Canaan. And so we have these angels in military camps. But second, meeting these angels in this way reminds Jacob that God is now his God, and that God is protecting him. That God is in the battle with him and fighting for him. Matthew Henry says this of these angels. He says, They appeared to Jacob in two hosts, one on either side, or one in the front and the other in the rear, to protect him from Laban behind him, and to protect him from Esau in front of him, that they might be a complete guard around him. Thus, Jacob is encompassed with God's favor. And I think that's the message. This was God saying, yes, Jacob, your life is going to be hard and there's battles ahead and there's, there's, there's reason to, to be afraid from a worldly standpoint, but I am with you. My angels are working. We are around you. You're in good hands. Well, what has God told us who are His children about our futures Has God told us that our lives will be trouble-free? Of course not, no. But He has said that He will be with us. And that if He is for us, who can be against us? That our God, who began this good work in us, will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. 
So let the world and let Satan, let even our flesh do what they will to harm us. God will bring His children safely to heaven. So this is a word of comfort. Take comfort, Christians. Your God is with you. Now, look at what happens next. Verses 3 through 8. Verses 3 through 8. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant, Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants and female servants. I have sent to tell my lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you, and there are four hundred men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were there with him, and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two camps, thinking, If Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. So, Jacob is not the same man from two decades ago, right? We remember deceitful Jacob. We remember the the wickedness of his heart, and he's still a sinner, and he's still going to make mistakes, and he still has his struggles, but he is a different man. And he is a man who now longs to be reconciled to his brother. He wants to make right the wrongs that he did 20 years ago. We see the change that's happened in Jacob's life in two places. First, in the fact that he calls Esau, my lord Esau. This was the language of courtesy in the ancient world, but it includes putting yourself in a subordinate place. Once he says uh, that he is Esau's servant, second, he calls him my lord Esau. It can also be translated my master Esau. And so Jacob is showing respect to his older brother. He's showing subjection to his older brother. This is not the Jacob from before, is it? The Jacob who showed no regard for his older brother. Well, second, we see the change in Jacob's life in this list that he sends, right? I have oxen, and I have donkeys, and I have flocks, and I have male servants, and I have female servants. This is not Jacob bragging about how much he has. The the commentators tell us that this is Jacob basically saying to Esau, I have lots of stuff, and I'm willing to make right all the ways I've wronged you. What can I give you? What can I do to make peace with you? What can I give you of all that I have so that we can be reconciled? Whatever Esau will require of him to help make up for the inheritance and the blessing that was stolen, Jacob is now willing to pay. So so Jacob sends this message to Esau, and his messengers come back and they bring terrifying news. Esau is on the way, and there are 400 men coming with him. And suddenly Jacob gets this sense of just how great a danger not only he is in, but how great a danger his entire household is in. And so he takes the step of of splitting them into two camps and setting them some distance apart, thinking, well, maybe one will survive if the other is attacked. And then what does Jacob do in the midst of this fear? Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. But what? Take it to the Lord in prayer. Jacob goes to his God in prayer. Look at verses 9-12 through and let's see this prayer of Jacob. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham, 
and God of my father Isaac. O Lord, who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Now there's, there's a lot to be said about this prayer because it is a wonderful model for us of how to pray. Let, let me note some of its features. Note first, it's brevity. It's a brief prayer. We, we don't have page after page after page of this prayer. Rather, the, the prayer is, is one little paragraph. And if you think about it, most of the prayers that we have recorded in the Bible are brief prayers. And I think that's important because it reminds us that when it comes to our communion with God, it is quality, not quantity, that counts most of all. Um, since tomorrow's Reformation Day and we have our, our party tonight, it's only appropriate that I quote Martin Luther at least once in this sermon. So here's what Martin Luther said about prayer. God does not ask how much or how long you have prayed, but how good the prayer is and whether it proceeds from the heart. In other words, if you have to choose between praying really long prayers seldom or praying short but earnest prayers often, I think I would encourage you to pray short but earnest prayers often. Jacob's prayer is a brief prayer. But second, note the earnestness in the prayer. It is an earnest prayer. It's from the heart. I mean, as you read the prayer, you can hear the desperation in Jacob's voice. Thomas Watson said, Jacob never prayed so fervently as when he was in fear of his life. He oiled the key of prayer with his tears. Interestingly, we can think about our own Savior and how he prayed. Hebrews 5, 7 says, In the days of his flesh... Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to Him who was able to save Him from death. And He was heard because of His reverence. The Hebrew writer makes us think back to Jesus praying in Gethsemane, Gethsemane and, and reminds us of the earnestness of Jesus' prayers, the, the loud cries, the tears that were a part of it. All of our prayers are to be marked by genuine earnestness. God looks at the heart, and when we pray from the heart, it draws His attention, and it draws His affection. What we think about the Pharisees and how they were hypocrites, and their prayers were heartless. They were all uh, formal and full of, of formal language and words, but it was not from the heart, and God rejected those prayers. Thomas Brooks said that cold prayers freeze before they reach heaven. And so whether it's in private or whether it's in family worship or whether it's in the prayers we pray in this room or in Sunday school or in care meeting, our prayers should always be marked by sincerity, by earnestness. John Bunyan said, When you pray, it is better to let your heart be without words than your words to be without heart. Even if you say nothing at all, but just humble yourself before God with a humble heart, that means more 
than if you speak words to God that your heart is not into. Note the earnestness of Jacob's prayer. But third, note the humility in Jacob's prayer. What does Jacob say? I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servants. Jacob declares his unworthiness before God. He humbles himself before God. He remembers who he is in the presence of Almighty God. Church, nothing will bring poison to your prayers quicker than pride. God resists the proud. But he draws near to the humble. I think about Daniel praying in Daniel 9. And Daniel cries out to God and he says, We do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. That's what true prayer looks like. It comes to God and it says, God, I'm not coming to you because I think I deserve this, because I'm worthy of this, because I think that somehow you owe me this. No, God, I come because of your great mercy, because you've told me to come, and because you love to show mercy. Oh God, in light of your character, have mercy. Do this thing. Hear this request. It's what prayer should look like. And so I would ask you, do your prayers sound this way? Are they they marked by a sincere earnestness? Are your prayers marked by a genuine humility? Do you take a moment when you pray to to prepare yourself before you pray? The the way you would prepare yourself before you enter into the presence of a great king. Now, this great king is our father. And He is our Father who has told us to approach Him with boldness. So there is a place for boldness in our prayers, but even that boldness is to be attached to a humility and a sincerity. I'm going before the King of kings. Let me make sure that what I'm bringing before Him is worthy of His attention and His affection. Worthy to be brought before Him. Fourth, note also the content of Jacob's prayer. That that there are three components, so to speak, of of Jacob's prayer. There's thanksgiving, right? Includes thanksgiving for what God has done in the past. God, when I first crossed this Jordan River, all I had with me was my staff. Now, Father, 20 years later, I'm coming back across this Jordan River, and look, I've become two camps, right? And so there's this, this praise of thanksgiving. I'm not worthy of this, God. Thank you for your past kindness to me. But then also notice that He includes petitions. He comes to God with requests. He prays for himself. Deliver me from the hand of my my brother Esau. And he prays for others. Right? I'm afraid that they're going to come not only kill me, but they're going to kill my household. He's going to kill the mothers with their children. And so he brings requests to God on behalf of himself and on behalf of others. And then after thanking God and praising God, bringing his requests before God, I love this, he closes by clinging to a promise of God. He, he prays God's promise back to him, right? He ends with this expression of faith. I fear Esau that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children, but you said, I will surely do you good and make your offsprings the sand of the sea which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he prays a prayer with with faith. He he gets off of his knees, and and as he gets off of his knees, he's clinging to the promise of God. He has prayed in faith, and now he will act in faith. 
Thomas Watson again. The reason why so many prayers suffer shipwreck is because they split against the rock of unbelief. Praying without faith is like shooting without bullets. When faith takes prayer in hand, then it is that we truly draw near to God. So our prayers must be earnest. Our prayers must be humble. Our our prayers should include praise and thanksgiving and petitions. But ultimately, our prayers must proceed from faith. Father, I trust You. Father, I trust Your promises in light of who You are and what You've said and what You've done in my life. I pray this prayer and I will get up off of my knees with a content heart. Whatever You do, I will be content in You. Examine yourself. Do you pray this way? Do you declare to God His own promises when you pray? Do you resolve in your heart in His presence that you will cling to His Word no matter what? This is where Jacob found the courage to stay where he was and to face Esau rather than turn around and run back across the Jordan. This is where he found his courage. Let's press on. Let's look at verses 13 through 21. Verses 13 through 21. See what happens next. So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, Pass on ahead of me, and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, When Esau my brother meets you and asks you, To whom do you belong? Where are you going? And who are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, They belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present to my lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with this present that goes before me. And afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. And so the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. So a gift of tribute from one person to another person was customary in the ancient world. But this gift is far above and beyond what was normal. Jacob gives Esau 550 animals of breeding age. Jacob here is making absolutely clear to his brother that he is willing to give and to do whatever is necessary to make things right with him. Some things cannot be undone, but Jacob is willing to provide materially as much as Esau requires for there at least to be peace between them, for there to be reconciliation. We can see what's going on in Jacob's heart. We see what he wants most in this whole ordeal because he says, perhaps he will accept me. Right? Jacob wants to be accepted by his brother. He wants there to be peace. Quick question for you. Is there anyone in your life that is at enmity with you because of something you've done? And have you done what you can to make peace with them? 
Have you done all you can on your part to strive for reconciliation? This is the way of Christ who made reconciliation between us and God. And you remember his words, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Is there anyone in your life with whom, in obedience to God, you need to go and make reconciliation? You need to fight for peace in that relationship. Let's look at the incredible thing that happened in verses 22 through 32. Beginning in verse 22. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He told them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask me my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, the face of God, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. And therefore to this day the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. And so we have Jacob alone on the night before he will actually go and meet his brother Esau face to face. Twenty years have passed. Will Esau kill me? Will Esau attack me? Will we exchange hostile words? Will there be an argument? Could there be peace? All of these things are, are certainly going through Jacob's heart, through Jacob's mind. There's, there's fear mixed with a, a desire to trust the Lord and all of these things happening. And suddenly this man comes upon Jacob and begins wrestling with him. Now, he's more than a man. For by the time he leaves, Jacob is convinced that, that this is a theophany. This is God Himself appearing in the form of a man. Indeed, there's very good reason to believe that this is the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ appearing as a man wrestling with Jacob. And when the man leaves Jacob, leaves, Jacob says this, I have seen God face to face. Now notice that the wrestling match takes place at night. It appears that these men wrestled for hours and for hours through the night. Darkness was all around them. Um, Nighttime was, was associated with, with meditation and looking into oneself and to coming to grips with fears. And so you can just imagine the thoughts going through Jacob's mind as he wrestles with this man literally for hours. After all that he's been through in the past and everything that's on his heart and mind about tomorrow, and he's wrestling with this man. The match is a draw until the man touches Jacob's hip socket and puts his hip 
out of joint. I think it's safe to say that most people there would have stopped wrestling immediately. I know many of you in this room have experienced the pain involved in having your hip come out of joint. But in this moment of pain, Jacob refuses to let the man go. By now, he's already figured out that that he's wrestling somebody unique, somebody special, somebody powerful and important. And he says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And the first blessing he receives is a new name. He will now be called Israel. What does Israel mean? Well, the name Israel refers to someone who struggles with God. This is an appropriate name for Jacob. How much more an appropriate name for the nation that's going to come from Jacob, right? They will be called Israel, and their history will be a history of of struggling with God, struggling to be faithful to Him, struggling not to turn away from Him. Israel means one who struggles with God. So when Jacob hears this name, it immediately grabs his attention, right? Are you saying, I've been struggling with God? Is it God that I've been wrestling? And, and he, th- this thought goes through his mind, have, have I been wrestling God? And in wonderment he asks, please tell me your name. And the man responds, why is it that you ask my name? Probably meaning, you already know who I am. <laughs> what you're thinking is correct. And so we are told that God blessed Jacob again. And we can presume that this blessing of Jacob was the same blessing that we've been watching be given time and time again throughout the book of Genesis. The promise given to Abraham, the promise given to to Isaac, the promise that's been given to Jacob, and now it's being reissued. Jacob, I will bless you. A great nation is coming from you. There's going to be a great kingdom established, right? I am going to be with you, and the nations are going to be blessed because of you. All of this culminating, as we know, in the coming of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why would God humble Himself to a wrestling match with Jacob? I mean, obviously God could have spoken a word and Jacob would have turned to dust. So why why does God humble Himself to to fight to a draw with Jacob? Well, one of the answers is this. God did it for our sakes and for the sakes of His people to teach us about persisting and wrestling with God through prayer. God calls each and every one of us to to wrestle with Him in prayer, pleading with Him to bless us in certain ways. Anthony Burgess said this, God will have us pray because it is in prayer that our desire and high esteem is shown for the mercy that we're praying for. Do we not say that something is of little worth if we're not going to ask for it? Hence it is that God loves wrestling and fervent prayers. God loves wrestling and fervent prayers. Mount Hermon, do you know what it is to go before your heavenly Father with a case to make? Father, here's the grace I need. I need patience and I need it badly. Let me tell you why. Let me give reason after reason. And you express your desire to glorify God. You express your desire to to love others better through your patience. And and as you pray to Him, your heart burns because you desire more patience so badly. And, And you keep praying for it day in and day out. This is what wrestling with God looks like. And God calls you to do it. You won't let go of God. You refuse to stop praying. 
until he's answered your prayer. Just like hunting dogs are taught not to stop running until they've caught their prey, we are told not to stop praying until we've desired, until we've received the the blessing that we so desperately desire. Persistence. Persistence. Does this mark your life of prayer? Can you point to requests in your life that you've been bringing before God's throne for years? Can you give testimony of something that you prayed for for years and eventually, by, in God's providential timing, He answered that prayer? Maybe there's some of you in here this morning, you've been praying for something so long that you've begun to grow weary of praying for it. You've begun to be tempted to give up praying for it any longer. Maybe you feel kind of like Jacob with his hip out of joint. You're you're about ready to let go of God. Don't let go. Keep wrestling. Keep asking. Keep seeking. Keep knocking. God does see. And when the time is right, if what you are asking truly is a good request in His plan for your good and His glory, you can be sure He will answer. God grieves with His people as they grieve. And He only puts off answering if it's for our good and the good of others. Yes, you may have been knocking for a long time, but at least you can have confidence you are knocking at the right door. God is hearing you. Be persistent. He will answer. Don't stop knocking till He answers. We've mentioned before what this looked like in Charles Simeon's life, how he would take up his Bible in the morning, and he knew that he would need peace in his heart and joy in his soul if he was going to face the trials of his day with with godliness. And so he would open up his Bible and, and he would pray to God, God, I'm not going to get up from this Bible until you've blessed me. And he would pray that each morning and then he would start reading the Scriptures and he would meditate on the Scriptures and he would think about the Scriptures and he would pray over the Scriptures. And once his heart had been blessed, he would get up. And he would face his day with his heart overflowing with joy in God. Friends, what a privilege to be able to commune with God himself. We deserve God's everlasting wrath. And he has given us this great mercy. This gift has been given to us only by the death of Christ Jesus bore the wrath of God that His people deserved so that their sins would be forgiven and so that God would be just in opening up His throne room to sinners like you and like me. For in every time we pray, we are enjoying a benefit given to us at the cost of the blood of Christ. Here is another reason not to neglect prayer. Jesus died to give you this gift. What a shame to take something purchased at so so high a cost and to let it go to waste. Unbelievers in this room, you do not have free access to God. You have not been invited into the throne room the way believers have because you are still a criminal like the rest of us in here once were. But your sins can be forgiven. And you can have peace with God. And the free gift of prayer can be yours if you turn to Christ. 
Christ has done everything necessary to bring you to God. Turn from your sins. Stop being the master of your own life. Submit yourself to Christ. He's the best master you could ever have. Far better than yourself. Turn to Jesus. Follow Him. Rest in His love. Rest in His grace. And one of the great benefits that we have when we believe on Christ is that from that moment forward, we get to live for all eternity able to commune with the holy, holy, holy God who created us. What a joy. Friends, I hope you will hear this as a call for us to redouble our commitment to praying and praying well. Let's pray even now. Let's pray.